Surely there never was a fight better worth making than the one which we are in. Welcome to Bully Pulpit. That was Teddy Roosevelt. I'm Bob Garfield. With episode 19, evidently you can go home again. Let me ask you, by any chance, do you remember this? From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. That was from a 2012 episode of Lexicon Valley, which at the time was a brand new podcast co-hosted by Mike Volo and me. Now, as a former Pennsylvania public official once said to me, that's all water under the dam. John McWhorter is now the urbane, witty, and highly expert host of Lexicon Valley. Mike is the co-founder of Booksmart Studios, and I am a mere pulpit bully, humbly endeavoring to illuminate the peccadilloes of our society. But not this week. This week, to mark the re-release of early Lexicon Valley episodes, we've gotten the band back together. Mike and I are reprising our once-upon-a-time roles as amateur linguists. Or anyway, he does. I mostly crack jokes and swear. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Then stay tuned at the end for a special subscription offer we are confident will make you happy. Washington, D.C. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and on today's show, searching for the true meaning of happiness. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. The sun is shining. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm well, thanks. Happy Thanksgiving to you, plus an early happy holidays. Thank you so much. I notice you're hitting the word happy as you say those sentences. Perhaps that's because happy, the word, might be the topic of this episode. But before we begin, Mike, Mm -hmm. we stopped doing this like five years ago. Why (laughs) why are we here? (laughs) Yeah, we don't host this show anymore. And can I just say... That's not been a bad five years, so I'm curious why we're reconvening. It's a good question. Why are we here? A couple of reasons. One, to give our friend and colleague, John McWhorter, a much-needed break. Turns out, as prolific as he is, he's not indefatigable. He is defatigable, if that's a word. And two, we are announcing the release on booksmartstudios.org of the very first 10 or so episodes of Lexicon Valley that we ever did, recorded back in 2011 and 2012, they're sort of remastered. I edited out all of the ads and promos. I cleaned up the audio so they sound better. These are streamlined. And frankly, you know, having listened to them all again, those initial episodes, I would suggest that they are surprisingly great. Well, and and you say that with all critical distance. Uh, Now, these reconditioned lexicon valleys, they hold up. You would think that they would be dated. They're not. Yeah, they actually do hold up. They're all evergreen, as they say in the news business. They're not topical, so to speak. So they last forever. 
And I should mention that these are just for subscribers only, for paying subscribers. So if you would like access to these ad-free, promo-free initial Lexicon Valley episodes, then please sign up for a subscription at booksmartstudios.org. We will continue to release in batches of 10, 15, or 20 the rest of those archival Lexicon Valley episodes, and they will continue to be for paying subscribers only. Discovering that they actually hold up after all this time makes me genuinely happy, which brings us to today's show. I want to begin, Bob, with my son, Xander. This past summer, shortly before Xander started third grade, I was schlepping him around, as I often do one day, when he announced from the backseat of the car that he had something to tell me. He was very excited that he had figured out the right way to phrase whatever this was that he had been apparently thinking about. You've met Xander, so it may not surprise you to learn that he has a, I guess what I would call an idiosyncratic idea of what it means to be honest. And maybe other kids are this way too, but his absolutist conception of the truth extends beyond what I would call the mere absence of lies. And it, it enters the realm of often uncomfortable, often indiscreet observations. Candid to a fault, perhaps. Yeah. And, you know, I've tried telling him that sharing every thought that you have does not necessarily make you truthful. It can often make you a jerk, right? He doesn't see it that way. So he said the following, and this was not at all mean. He said, you know, Dad, I think sometimes you care more about me than my happiness. Wow. Wow. I had the same reaction. I was like, whoa, I, I'm not exactly sure what that means. I just want to say that had that been a scene in a movie, mm -hmm. I would have said, oh, for crying out loud, you know, what eight-year-old can make that observation, formulate that idea, and then stew on it for some, you know, who knows what length of time. It's preposterous to impute that kind of sensitivity onto a little kid. So you have to rewrite this scene. <laughs> he is quite sensitive, and he has an emotional intelligence that I certainly did not have when I was seven and eight years old. <laughs> I, li I like how you use the past tense there, but do go on. So I asked him to elaborate. I hit record on my phone, and here's a little bit of what he said. Well, I think you care about my health, what I think, who I knew, more than how I feel. Was he complaining? merely observing, wishing that you were more attentive to his emotional well-being than his human development? What was he getting at? Was there an agenda with this observation? I'm not sure what he was getting at, but I told him that I think he might be right. It sounds right, what he was saying, but I wanted to consider it some more and that I would get back to him. So that was August. And I should really get back to him. But I wanted to discuss it, this word happiness and what it might be, and then think about it a little bit more philosophically. And so where does the word happiness come from? I guess from the Eustatian word, chacha. I, I don't know where the f 
fucking happiness comes from in any sense of that sentence? Well, happiness comes from the word hap, H-A-P, which originally meant simply good fortune, right? Or even prosperity. Ah, so I know it in the negative as hapless, mm-hmm. which means you just can't catch a break. The word hap itself is a bit archaic now, and you're right. It exists today in the word hapless, in the word mishap, but we don't really use it in the affirmative. One of the first known examples of hap in writing is from an early Middle English text about St. Catherine. So we're talking the year 1200 when this was written, and I'll give you the relevant passage translated into modern English. She stood still a while and lifted up her heart to the high Savior that is honored in heaven. She sought of him help and success and wisdom. So she lifted up her heart, St. Catherine did, to the high Savior, God, presumably, who is honored in heaven. She sought of him help and success and wisdom. Now, remember, that's the modern English translation. The original Middle English was besought him, beseeched of him, help and hap and wisdom. So hap is translated into modern English as success. So hap was not just fortune, but it was good fortune. Mm -hmm. I'll give you another example. This is from Sir Walter Scott in one of his ridiculously long poems. "'Tis true that mortals cannot tell what waits them in the distant dell. But be it hap or be it harm, we tread the pathway arm in arm. So hap is the, the opposite of harm in Sir Walter Scott's telling. Yeah, hap is used by Scott as a counterpoint here to harm. In other words, hap is good, harm is bad. Before we pursue this, I just want to take a brief digression to talk about Mel Bernstein, who was a high school friend of my brother, Josh. And he was <laughs> he was <laughs> telling his story and interjected thusly, as Josh likes to say, "Oh, what a tangled web we weave." <laughs> <laughs> he thought your brother coined that. <laughs> That was uh, a hapless attribution. Be it hap or be it harm, we tread the pathway arm in arm. Now, what's interesting is that hap could also be used more or less in a neutral way, meaning simply fortune, not good fortune, but just fortune or destiny, right? Without having this embedded sense of good or bad. Uh It's more about chance, you might say. So in Paradise Lost, as Josh might have said, Satan takes on the form of a serpent, and he goes out looking for, well, the only two people on earth, right? He sought them both, he being Satan, searching for both Adam and Eve. He sought them both, but wished his hap might find Eve separate. 
Satan was hoping that chance would have it that he would find Eve by herself, which he does. And of course, he then talks up that apple and and she eats it. Why would he want to find Eve by herself? Well, it's easier to fool somebody if they don't have somebody else there to convince them that you're trying to pull one over on them. Or hit on her. He's like, hey, Eve, do you come here often? It's possible he didn't want Adam around when he's making his move. I'm just trying to wonder how that would work, him being in the form of a serpent and her being in the form of a human. I I don't even want to go in this direction. So Hap could be more or less neutral. There's a novelist from the late 1800s. His name is Walter Besant. He wrote many novels, but one of them is called Children of Gibeon. He writes, How can a hive of humanity ever be dull? There is no monotony where there are constantly happening sickness and suffering, birth and death, good hap and evil hap. Humanity is interesting because there's all this stuff going on, right? So hap could be good or bad. It could even be evil, apparently. I don't know if you remember Abigail Breslin. She played the young girl in Little Miss Sunshine. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. She was later in a movie that I'm almost certain you've never seen. It's called Wicked Blood. Here, I'll quote the description from IMDb. She plays a bright teen girl trapped in the dark southern underworld of violence and guns, meth labs, and vicious biker gangs, and whose only refuge is chess. She has a voiceover at one point in which she describes the role of pawns, both in life and on the actual chessboard. The pawns. Poor pawns are silly swains, which seldom serve except by hap. And yet those pawns can lay their trains to catch a great man in a trap. Well, I see the chess imagery, but she was quoting whom? I think that was the original writing for that movie. Hmm. It's quite Elizabethan. The point there is that pawns seldom serve except by hap, right? There again, there's this implication of chance, of dumb luck. But even when that's the case, there's still this sense that the chance outcome being discussed is desirable for at least one of the parties, right? So as far as the serpent in Paradise Lost is concerned, it's good luck that he found Eve alone. Not so good for Eve or for the rest of humanity, but good for the serpent. As far as the pawn is concerned, it's good luck that he caught the king in a trap. Not so good for the king. So Hap was assumed to be good unless it was stated to be bad. It occurred to me as you were reading not that passage, but the previous one, it began with the word happening. And one wonders, does one not, does the Hap in happen? correspond etymologically to the hap in fortune? Yes. In fact, if you think about it, it seems sort of intuitive, right? To happen is to chance to be. You can think of the word hap as the trunk of the tree. One branch is the word happen. Another branch of that tree would be... So happen, happy, with the positive spin to it, I can certainly see how that transpired etymologically, but uh, I guess it could have easily gone the other direction, right? Happy Thanksgiving might have meant, I hope it's the same psychodrama you have every year. Eh? 
I mean, if it's a question of happenstance, one might ask, had the language flowed in a slightly different direction, we could be saying, go happy yourself. So what if it hurts me? I just want to reflect a little bit on how how funny it is that if you want to turn a noun into an adjective in English, one way that you can do that often, you just add that E sound. Imagine explaining this to somebody who's trying to understand English adjectives for the first time. So if you want to say that the room is full of dust, the room is dust E. Okay, what if there's hair everywhere? What would that be? That would be hair E. Say someone has a lot of good fortune. What then? Lucky motherfucker. Or you might say, instead of lucky motherfucker, you might say hap E. Ah, yes, that's a definite possibility. And now I can see where you're going with this. So if you try to hear English as a non-native speaker... It sounds kind of silly, right? That you're sill e, by the way, which is full of sill. Wait, that's not a thing. That is a thing, and you're not going to believe this, but sill comes from an old English word, seal, S-E-E-L, or S-A-E-L, which meant happiness. It then formed silly or silly, which took on a whole bunch of different meanings, including the one that we associate most with it now, which is kind of goofy, right? Or goofy, full of goof. This is so amazement-y. <laughs> so if you form an, an adjective in this way, it often means having an abundance of something, right? So dusty is full of dust, and happy is full of hap. But not always, because when you turn cat into caddy, that doesn't mean full of cats. It means like a cat. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, or what I think is interesting about forming adjectives in this way, is that you can have words that do both depending on the context. If you make a cake that is very chocolatey, you probably mean that it's made with a lot of chocolate. But if you say that wine is chocolatey. It's chocolate-like. Okay, tangent over. Let's get back to hap, making that leap to happy, meaning literally full of hap, full of good fortune, which is not quite the happy that we know it as today, right? The one that you've only heard rumors about, this idea of contentment or however else you would define being happy, which is kind of what I'm trying to do here so I can finally get back to Xander and figure out if he's right, that I care more about him than his happiness. There's a uh, Britishism. When you are unlucky, where you have no success, they'll say, well, they have no joy, mm, mm -hmm. which you know seems to be in the ballpark or in the cricket pitch or whatever the hell they <laughs> do that on. Yeah, it's tucked away somewhere in your jumper or in your... In the boot of your jumper. <laughs> so so this idea of happy 
being not content, but full of hap, full of good fortune, this was what the adjective happy originally meant. In the early 1300s, there was an English monk who wrote, as people did back then, one of those histories of like everything that happened up until the day that that monk decided to write the history, right? People decided that they were going to do that back then. They were just like, I'm going to read every book that's ever been published, and I'm just going to write a history of everything. All nine of them. (laughs) So at one point, he was discussing Herod the Great. He wrote that Herod was most ungracious in homely or domestic things and fortunate in other things. Now, this was written in Latin, which is something else monks did back then. So the word fortunate was actually fortunatus. And the very first translation of this work into English, just a few decades later, I think in the 1300s, the translator chose the word happy for fortunatus, because that's what happy meant, fortunate, full of good fortune. So Herod was most ungracious in domestic things and happy in other things. And if you know anything about Herod the Great, you would know that he was, in fact, pretty ungracious in domestic affairs. That's a huge understatement. (laughs) The guy had like 10 wives, not at the same time, not as a polygamist. This was like serially. He was the Larry King of his day. He had at least that many children. He had one of his wives and other family members killed. So the guy was a complete mess at home, ungracious in his domestic affairs, but he was happy, happy, he was full of hap in other things. And that sense of happy, which is not the way we use it today, is nevertheless preserved in certain phrases that we do still use today. And you could probably come up with one or two of them if you think about it. I guess you're wrong. (laughs) Maybe you can't. Well, not too long ago, Xander and my wife and I watched the new Disney movie, Cruella, which purports to tell the backstory of Cruella de Vil. I never read 101 Dalmatians, so I don't know if any of this is actually in the book. But here's Emma Stone with a voiceover at a pivotal moment in the movie. It's funny how those happy accidents can change the whole direction of your life. Although looking back... Happy may be the wrong word. Gruella DeVille and Bob Ross embracing the same phrase. There are no mistakes, only happy accidents. (laughs) Right, because those happy accidents, they are serendipitous, right? Mm -hmm. Here is a clip of George Sanders, the old actor George Sanders, in the great movie All About Eve. Eve, of course, was superb. Many of the audience understandably preferred to return another time to see Margot. But those who remained cheered loudly, lustily, and long for Eve. How thoughtful of her to call and invite me that afternoon. And what a happy coincidence that several representatives of other newspapers happened to be present. All of us invited that afternoon to attend an understudy's performance about which the management knew nothing until they were forced to ring up the curtain at nine o'clock. Coincidence. There again, the word happy preserved in this sense of fortunate, right? In a somewhat different phrase. Yeah. And Baxter pretended to be so devoted to Betty Davis, but she wasn't devoted. 
No, no. The most manipulative, conniving, two-faced betrayer. There was nothing accidental about that happy accident. Wow, that movie really had an effect on you. (laughs) Well, it was a happy coincidence that there were other newspapers there. And I think he was being somewhat facetious. Here is another movie. This is British actor Terence Morgan in the film The Penthouse. It was easy, my love. When you're the honored representative extraordinaire of the Brandon Estate Agency, you're in a happy position to take advantage of your client's generosity in their absence. So again, here's another one of those pat phrases that is frozen in amber today that preserves that meaning of happy that is somewhat archaic, I would say. And you don't really have to go to a 60s British movie. Uh, I mean, that's a phrasing that I, I use every now and then. I was in the happy position, too, or mm-hmm. whatever. Well, come to think of it, I'm encrusted pretty much in amber myself. So, uh. <laughs> And the happy position would be an auspicious position, mm-hmm. right? A fortunate position. Happy in these constructions, in all of these constructions, does not mean overjoyed. It means opportune, fortuitous, fortunate. It means filled with hap. There's one more great example, and unfortunately, there's no audio clip of this because it's from Thomas Jefferson. This is from the early 1790s when uh, Jefferson was very concerned that there were prominent people in America, including some legislators, who were still agitating for what he called an English constitution, in other words, a monarchy. He was really worried about this, and in a letter that he wrote to Lafayette at the time... He didn't want our constitution to be too monarchy. (laughs) That's right. So he wrote to Lafayette, it is happy for us that these are preachers without followers and that our people are firm and constant in their Republican purity. Uh, Little did Thomas Jefferson know that those followers would be wearing uh, red hats or camo fatigues and uh, taking a slightly different view of the uh, power of the executive. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that the contingent that you're alluding to today would be in favor of a monarchy so much as an autocracy, But yeah, those words might not have aged very well. And Hamilton at the time was totally dismissive of Jefferson's concerns. His words aged even less well. Hamilton said, the idea of introducing a monarchy or aristocracy into this country is one of those visionary things that none but madmen could meditate and that no wise man will believe. If it could be done at all, which is utterly incredible, It would require a long series of time, certainly beyond the life of any individual, to effect it. Who, then, would enter into such a plot? (laughs) Well, I I can answer that in detail, but, you know, listen, great guy, important framer, very bad shot, and not much of a visionary. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We fought for these ideals, we shouldn't settle for less. These are wise words, enterprising men quote them. Don't act surprised, you guys, cause I wrote them. Ow, but Hamilton forgets. His plan would have the government assume state debts. Now place your bets as to who that benefits. The very seat of government where Hamilton sits. The noun happiness also had that meaning of fortune or success when it was first coined. 
So in Shakespeare's The Two Gentlemen of Verona, Act 1, Scene 1, Proteus is wishing Valentine safe travels. Valentine is about to go off and see the world, and he says, Wish me partaker in thy happiness when thou dost meet good hap. In other words, if you meet up with good hap or good fortune out there on the road, I hope you'll wish that I was there with you. So it wasn't yet synonymous with contentment or emotional good feelings or sense of well-being. It was still all about your fortunes. Right, exactly. Partaking in thy happiness, in thy good fortune. The very next line by Proteus is, And in thy danger, if danger do environ thee, commend thy grievance to my holy prayers. So, whereas Sir Walter Scott and, and also my brother Josh <laughs> naturally used harm as a counterpoint to hap, here Shakespeare is using danger as the opposite condition. Yeah, as that counterpoint to happiness. Again, happiness is not about the emotion that we think of when we use happy or happiness today. Of course, it's easy to imagine how both happy and happiness drifted in meaning to the emotion, because if you have good fortune, then you're likely to be content or even filled with joy, right? What we mean when we say happy today. But it's still hard to define happiness exactly, which brings me back to my son. What is happiness, more philosophically? Now that we've investigated this word lexicographically, how would you define happiness if you were writing the dictionary definition? I would say a sense of well-being, uh, contentment, governed by circumstance and brain hormones. So I asked Xander about happiness because I wanted to figure out a little bit more how I might respond to him. And here is some of what he said. Happiness is when you have the joy of liking something. You know, that's why you like something, because you're happy. You know, when he said this, and I thought about it for a little while, the first thing that occurred to me was, wait, isn't it the opposite? You're happy because you like something. And then the more I thought about it, I discovered that, no, he's right. You like something because you're happy when you're doing it. What he's getting at reminds me of a couple of things. First of all, there's a scene from the movie Rushmore, one of my favorite movies. And if you haven't seen it, all you need to know is that in this scene, a very accomplished grown man played by Bill Murray asks a high school kid played by Jason Schwartzman what his secret is. In other words, how is it that you're so happy all of the time? And here is Jason Schwartzman, whose character in the movie is Max Fisher. Here's what he says. What's the secret, Max? The secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. Secret, I don't know. I think you just got to find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. Perhaps happiness derives from figuring out what you love to do and finding a way to do it all the time, which brings to mind the doozers. Does that ring a bell for you? It does not.
in Fraggle Rock, there is a race of creatures called the Doozers, and they are these little miniature Muppets that build these constructions. They're made out of edible material. I think it was radishes, if I remember correctly. Build this stuff that looks like scaffolding, and then the Fraggles eat it. But the Doozers live to work. That's what makes them happy. They build them, the Fraggles eat them, and they just keep rebuilding them. That's all they do. 90% of the population of the Doozers are construction workers. The other 10% are like engineers and architects. Well, it sounds kind of like a beehive. It sounds like an ecosystem, Mm -hmm. only it's an anthropomorphic ecosystem. But this makes me wonder, Mike, because... In the case of Fraggle Rock, if I'm understanding it correctly, this is all hardwired. The Doozers are designed to build and the Fraggles are designed to consume and it's, you know, the great circle of life. It's the most simple iteration of what we know as an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. There's no free will involved. It's genetic. I think Xander... And I'm surprised because as an eight-year-old, I think he should have a grasp of this. The kind of happiness he's describing, I don't believe is long-term. I believe he's saying what in the moment makes you feel good, like screen time, instead of having dad go on and on and on about etymology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know a lot of miserable people, some of whom are in this conversation, who are perfectly capable of having a pleasant time in the moment, but generally are living lives of utter despair. (laughs) Have been have been in an existential tailspin since birth, more or less. I just think that he's talking about something transitory. You're keeping him from having fun when you're trying to make him a better person. You are absolutely anticipating where I'm going. I came to that very same conclusion as well when I asked Xander, how is happiness different from sadness? And Mm. the first thing he said, and I recorded this as well, it may be hard to make out, but the first thing he said is that happiness seems more fleeting. Wait, wait, wait. He said what? If you can make it out, he says happiness seems more fleeting, and then he goes on from there. Well, happiness seems more fleeting. The thing about being mad or being sad is if you don't like something, you have to think about why you don't like it, and that what makes you stay on the thought for a long time. Also, it's because not liking something can be a more important feeling than liking something. Why is that more important? Well, what I'm saying is it sticks to you a little bit. Well, fuck me. The kid's name is Alexander. I think Aristotle would have been more appropriate. So sadness is something we tend to wallow in, right? He has picked up on that. We don't generally wallow in happiness. It seems to come and go. There are a few people who have arrived at this in poetic words over the years that have really stuck with me. One of them is the songwriter Sarah McLaughlin, who put it really well when she said that Happiness is like a cloud. If you stare at it long enough, it evaporates. 
the writer Frank McCourt said that happiness is hard to recall. It's just a glow. And this is a physician and writer from the early 1900s who noted that it's, it's really difficult to buy your way to happiness. He wrote, whatever the new expenditure, the happiness index soon returns to its old figure, whatever that may be, determined by unseen facts of the individual psyche. I think the reason that I've had a hard time coming up with what feels like a satisfying response to Xander is that the dictionary definition of happiness, what you were getting at before, this idea of contentment, that doesn't incorporate all of this complexity about long-term happiness versus short-term gratification or indulgence. It doesn't get at this idea of lasting happiness versus fleeting happiness, as Xander put it. The dictionary just says what you said. But I think now, having investigated this word and talked it out with you, I believe I know what Xander meant when he said, I think you care more about me than my happiness. And I guess this is what I would say to him. You're right, Xander, I do. You said that I care more about your health and what you think and who you are more than how you feel. Guilty as charged. When I literally held Xander down in the doctor's office while he screamed a couple of years ago because he didn't want to get a flu shot, that was me caring more about his health than his happiness. When we say as his parents that he cannot have ice cream for dinner, that's because we care more about him than his happiness. And when we say no more screen time, as you put it, Bob, for the day, that's because we care more about him than his happiness. So I I would say at the risk of sounding glib, I think what Xander has accurately charged me with is being a parent. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, that's being a parent. Being a grandparent means you care more about their happiness in the moment than what's good for them because you get to leave. (laughs) (laughs) You don't Um, care if they have ice cream for dinner. You just want them to like you. Absolutely. (laughs) Grandpa's coming. Grandpa's coming. He's going to look for my emotional well-being and my wholeness as a personality. Fuck that. No, here's a toy and some candy. (laughs) There's something you said that I'm going to start talking. I don't know where I'm going to wind up, but you mentioned Frank McCourt Mm -hmm. and his quotation about a glow. Mm -hmm. Happiness is hard to recall. It's just a glow. What I find fascinating about that is that his masterpiece, the memoir, Angela's Ashes, Mm -hmm. describes his upbringing in a slum His father was an alcoholic. He was constantly out of work. They had to move house again and again and again to stay ahead of the debt collectors. It was a life of privation and instability. And you would think abject misery. But what's so magnificent about the book is that McCourt, the adult memoirist, does not wallow in the misery because he reports on his childhood feelings as they were happening. And for him as a child, it wasn't misery. It was just being him. He didn't have any frame of reference to compare 
his circumstances with other kids. And so Mm -hmm. his recollection is of being a child, which is to say of just constant fun and joy. What to us looked horrid to him was just being. And it was the absence of resentment, the absence of bitterness, the absence of pain that made that memoir so affecting and gorgeous. He says it's hard to recall happiness, but that book glowed and glowed and glowed. I think you should tell Xander that you've given this some thought and just say, just shut the fuck up and glow. They see us burn across a thousand miles. We are brighter, the flame will never die. Let's show them how we light up tonight. Oh, you and I, we're soldiers of light. We will go. Lexicon Valley is a production of Booksmart Studios. John McWhorter will be back in a couple of weeks. With Mike Volo, I'm Bob Garfield. All right, Mikey, we done here? I think we're done. Later, Gator. So, yeah, we are done here, but uh, here's that special offer I promised. This week only, you can get a subscription to Booksmart Studios for just $5 a month or $50 a year. As a subscriber, you'll get extra content, including bonus segments, access to my weekly column, and archived episodes of Lexicon Valley, starring Mike and me. Sign up now at booksmartstudios.org and make a subscription that unique and personal gift for loved ones, friends, employees, secret Santas, and everyone on your holiday list. Bully Pulpit is produced by Mike Volo and Matthew Schwartz. Our theme was composed by Julie Miller and the team at Harvest Productions in Lansing, Michigan. Bully Pulpit and Lexicon Valley are productions at Booksmart Studios. We'll be back next week. I'm Bob Garfield.